Hi, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show. Today we're going to be talking about teaching philosophy to children and young adults. I have with me Peter Worley from the Philosophy Shop. Hello. And uh, he's been teaching young children aged between, well, from three upwards for about nine years. And we'll be talking about his motivations and teach and techniques for teaching uh, people so something so difficult or apparently difficult. Also with me in the studio is John Holroyd. Hello. Who's been teaching um, philosophy to teenagers from 14 to 18 for about 25 years. Uh, this edition of the radio show is in conjunction with the current edition of Philosophy Now magazine, where I work, which features several articles on different aspects of teaching philosophy to children. Um, if you're interested in what you hear today, then you, uh, it's out now, and if you can't get it from the news agents, uh, you can order a copy at philosophynow.org. Um, so first, I want to ask you, uh, Peter, what is the philosophy shop and what do you do? Right, well, we've recently become a charity, um, the trading arm of the Philosophy Foundation. Uh-huh. And uh, what the philosophy shop does is that we work in schools, mainly primary schools at the moment, but also secondary uh-huh. schools. Um, and we provide philosophy sessions for the kids, but also um, training for teachers on questioning skills, inquiry skills, and stuff like that. Okay, so that brings out this, I suppose, the first question is. Uh, what is philosophy and, and why is it important to you? Ah, yes, this question. Um, well, what is philosophy, of course, is notoriously difficult it's, uh, word to define. Um, so I think one should always be careful about trying to say exactly what philosophy yeah, is. But in your view... I think, I think if, we get, if we say... I think the best thing to do is to provide a kind of um, working definition yeah. for the purposes, for my present purposes. So I think, um, for me... Uh, philosophy is to do with things like second-order thinking. Which means what? Meta-level thinking. No, well, without thinking about, jargon. Without jargon. Without sort of... Um, so rather than... Give a nice simple example. Rather than doing philosophy, you mm-hmm. might be thinking about what philosophy is. Yeah. Might be a nice example of the sort of thing I'm talking about. Right. Or, um, or you can take this example with any subject. So doing history is one thing, uh-huh. but actually asking the question what history is. So it's is analysing kind of concepts or ideas or the meaning of words? It could well be, yes, that's right. And I think that brings us on to another important aspect of philosophy, and that would be what you might call conceptual analysis. Uh-huh. Um, taking, taking terms that you, that you are using and actually thinking about what they, they're built up of, what they're made up of in terms of meaning um, and how we, how we use them. Okay. Uh, John, what's philosophy to you and, and why is it important to you? Yeah, um, well... I would say that philosophy really is about the skill of thinking logically. Okay. It's about the techniques of putting together clear, coherent, articulated arguments. About anything or about uh, any particular it, subject? It, it can be, but I think that um, it, it is particularly interesting where, uh, because of the nature of the subject, the arguments are difficult to construct. Um, so, for example... Um, we might think of ethics, which uh-huh. is a whole branch of philosophy. Which is what? Uh, which is about the theory, really, of what is right and what is wrong. Morality. Um, uh, mo- yes, say. theories of, of morality. 
Uh, and, and there it becomes philosophical partly because we find that when we really start to dig into the question uh-huh. of what is right and wrong, mm-hmm. we find ourselves not very far in asking the question, what do these words actually mean? OK, so that's so, a bit like what Peter said there. Yes, it is. Yes, it's, it's analysing concepts. Uh-huh. Um, it's realising that they're not straightforward. Right. Um, and, and this also makes us wonder and makes us ask more questions uh-huh. and makes us dig more deeply. Okay. Um, yeah, there's, I think we're starting to hit upon something really crucial about philosophy here. And the, it's got something to do with the second order stuff we're talking about. Yeah. What do you mean um, by second order? Let yeah, second order, uh, going back to what I said at the beginning about um, you know, not doing philosophy but talking about what philosophy is. Uh-huh. And I think um, the problem with defining something like philosophy is, is contained in the very nature of, of its of doing the second Itself, order thinking. Yeah, right. So the moment you say it's about arguments or you, the moment you say about this, there's always going to be a philosopher somewhere who says, but is it? Is it, um, yeah. You know, and they'll say that actually there's a sense in which the arguments are not um, the, the, the crucial part. I mean, we also talked before about the role of empathy mm. in... in, in um, identifying with someone's position. Yeah. So I think uh, this, is the, this is the crucial thing, is that the moment you try to pinpoint or pin down what philosophy yeah. is, because of its second-order quality, it therefore becomes open to question. Well, I mean, I could give you a possible... Like, so suppose it's thinking about ideas. Would that be... What would be wrong with that definition of philosophy? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I think that... <laughs> A number of sort of working definitions are a good place to start. Yeah. And I think that there's nothing too wrong with having that uh-huh. as, as, as a place to start. But it's not any sort of thinking about ideas. I think it is quite Okay, what specifically, well, specific about it's, philosophy? It's, it's about analysing the ideas. It's about questioning the ideas. Uh-huh. It's about also, as well as critical thinking, saying what does this word uh, right or wrong mean, um, it's also about kind of bringing ideas together and seeing how they relate. How does, for example, the idea of equality, uh-huh. which is a very, very important uh, idea, um, you know, what are equal rights? Well, how do we work out um, what, what, what they are? Um, uh, you know, so it's, it's about... But, uh, and how does equality relate to justice? OK. To take another sort, sort of example. And it's, so it's not simply burrowing down into an idea. Yeah. It's also about what I call lateral thinking, this connection All right. between a series of different concepts. So we, we could perhaps say that, you know, the whole idea of philosophy is even can be encapsulated, like you say, in thinking about what philosophy is itself and analysing that concept. Uh, Peter, you say uh, you, you teach children critical thinking techniques, uh, obviously as part of philosophy. What do you think children will learn or gain from learning critical thinking and what, why the use of these skills? Um, I suppose this comes from... Um, I hope that the children gain the ability through using critical thinking skills, if that's what we want to call them, well, what would you um, call them? Yeah, I mean, you're the question. one who's taught, mm. teaching them. Um, yeah, I mean, critical thinking skills is often used. It's a term, term that's used in schools. Schools understand that. Yeah, um, right, OK. Term. So it's a good one to use in that sense. But uh, What do you mean, like, for people who don't know what it means? For those who don't know, critical thinking skills, I suppose, would be the things... Uh, the ability to take um, arguments, propositions claims that are made, yeah. and then to think about whether they make sense. Think about whether they are true, are true whether they're um, well-reasoned, yeah. Yeah, okay. and all that sort of stuff. So 
a classic example would be to look for fallacies. Right. And fallacies are arguments which appear on the surface to be good, but in fact they have something wrong with them. So it's possible that you're basically teaching them how to argue well. Is that right? How to argue well. Um, but if we just leave it there, then you're in the realm of sophistry mm-hmm. and rhetoric. So right. just learning to argue well could just be learning how to win an argument. Yeah. So we need to be careful to distinguish between that and, and um, learning to, to come up with an argument which isn't just persuasive um, to the person who might be hearing it, but actually has, um, I suppose, some truth to it. OK, how does that chime with what you do in for teenagers, John? I mean, are you teaching them critical thinking or are you teaching them... Uh, something beyond that? I don't think you can properly teach philosophy without teaching critical thinking. Uh, I mean, uh, I teach the International Baccalaureate Philosophy course. Uh And, for example, there we uh, look at a unit called People, Nations and Cultures. And that's for for 17-year-olds? 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds. That's the age group that, that, that does the International Baccalaureate. Uh, now, in that, yes, we, we um, look at, for example, the concept of multiculturalism. Uh-huh. And we ask now, what is a multiculture? Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I've got one student, for example, at the moment who's thinking of writing an extended essay uh-huh. uh, on the question uh, of, of the coherence of a multiculture. Right. And these are very, very important questions for, for, for our time. And, and, for, and for our lives, and um, so it's it's yes, it is applying rules of critical thinking. Right. Um, it's things like you know analysing um, David Cameron's speech, for example, about multiculturalism in Munich. Um, uh-huh. Are his ideas coherent? He talks about, uh, for example, tradition and community and shared experience. Okay, uh, and you know well. Are these do these ideas make sense, or for example, are we going to start asking questions like, uh, well, we don't all have one shared experience. We have many different experiences that overlap with a whole variety of groups of people. So um, it's it's about sort of ask, it's it's about applied critical thinking uh-huh. in areas that are important because they're about truth, because they're about justice, mm-hmm. um, they're about what is good. Okay, so really basic things. Um, I'd like to come back to the sort of my my area, um, which is the the work in the schools, the primary schools, and link it to what John's saying because um, it seems to me that the critical thinking uh, stuff that's done at A level yeah. is is left too late, in my opinion. So okay. doing a, a critical thinking A level, for instance, is a little bit like trying to cram French, you know, a, a whole language skill uh-huh. overnight. It's not going to happen um, quickly enough. And, of course, one of the problems that we're faced with is that many universities are complaining more and more about the, the lack of critical thinking skills right. in, the, um, in the undergraduates. And I have a feeling it's because there's, there's not enough of it going on at the younger age. This is where you, what motivates you to go into primary schools. That's exactly them, right. Yeah. So we're interested in, in, I like to call them, rather than thinking skills, thinking habits. Right. So they're learning how to... Um, uh, they're learning how to... How to have a disposition towards thinking in this way rather than learning all the arguments um, and, and looking at them and saying, this is this fallacy, this is this fallacy, but I'm actually not going to use it. Yeah. I've seen it, I've learned it, but it's, no, it's, not, it's not second nature to me. It's not become part of how I am and yeah. how I think. Whereas if you start this much earlier, 
You can. So you'll, you'll be wanting them to gain critical thinking skills by the time they've reached uh, GCSE level, basically. Well, that's, that's the plan, yeah. Okay, so now we're going to play the next track, which is Down in the Woods by Nutmeg City. Okay, that was that was down in the woods by Nutmeg City, and now we're going to talk specifically about the techniques uh, Peter and John used to teach uh, uh, children and teenagers philosophy. Um, first of all, um, I'm going to mention your book, The If Machine, Peter. It seems specifically designed as a handbook for teachers and others who would want to systematically stimulate or nurture the ability of children to think critically for themselves. It presents your method of teaching philosophy in classrooms honed over nine years' experience, I imagine, and shows anyone interested 
how they can use uh, those methods themselves. Uh, it's got over two dozen lesson plans. So, P- Peter, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what you do when you go into a primary school class to teach philosophy to children. What is your method of inquiry that you that you highlight in your book? Wow. Uh, well, it might take me nine years to answer that question. Yeah, well, how about a couple of minutes? <laughs> um, right, so first of all, I go into the classroom and I'm faced with uh, 30 children, let's say, um, of all different... Well, say different ages, yeah. but they tend to be the same age at the same time. Yeah, suppose it's uh, six years old, for instance. That's right. Okay, so 30 children all sat around um, in a sort of horseshoe shape. Yeah. So they can see each other, they can see me, uh-huh. they can see the board. Um, I'll usually present them with some kind of stimulus to get them going. Right. Um, and the if machine is obviously full of stimuli for, for those purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, then they're given some time to talk to each other, maybe, or think it through together. So give me, you know, give me an example of what you mean by stimulus. Okay. Uh, well, my favourite one is the probably the ship of Theseus example. Right, which is what? Where it's us. taken... The, the ship of Theseus is um, a thought experiment that Thomas Hobbes introduced. And it comes from the, the ancient Greek myth of English Theseus. English Civil War philosopher. Yeah, that's right. Um, comes from the ancient Greek myth of Theseus, right. um, who, of course, defeated the Minotaur and was helped by Ariadne. Um, well, at some point during the story, he's, he sails on the sea for many years right. in this ship. And what Thomas Hobbes said was, well, if you imagine the ship is um, each time a part of the ship needs replacing, mm-hmm. it's replaced with a new part. Right. Um, and this goes on, say, over seven years until eventually the ship's been completely replaced. Right. Um, and the question you might ask the kids, is um, do you think it's the same ship? At the end, of when all the parts were replaced. Exactly, as when it was first set out. Yeah. Um, and I, I began to use, um, to make this sort of visual and kinesthetic as well as auditory. Right, um, that's really nice jargon. Jargon, teacher jargon actually, this uh-huh. one. Um, trying to make the learning match all the different kind of learning styles right. that you've got Good. in the classroom. Uh, kinesthetic being those that learn by doing. Yeah. Um, uh, auditory being those that learn by hearing yeah. and the visual obviously being those that learn by seeing things. So I'll usually take some pencils or something like that yeah. and I'll have um, I'll make a, sh- a ship shape out of the pencils right. on, the, on the carpet. Oh, right. okay. um, a mast with one of the pencils and a piece of A4 paper will make the sail. Um, and then as I'm explaining how it works I'll, I'll demonstrate by doing it. So I'll yeah. take one of the pencils away okay. and replace it with, with another pencil which looks exactly the same. Right. Um, and then I do it with the second pencil and go all the way around until they're all replaced, including the sail. Okay. And we have a pile of the replaced pencils right. next to us. Um, so they can see exactly what's going on here. Yeah. And when they get to think about what the question is... So you don't t- do you tell them the question first, or do you tell them the story and then ask them the question afterwards? Um, well, I usually... This particular um, stimulus is... is specifically philosophically focused. So I usually begin by asking them the question, what I call a task question. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's the question that we start with. However, interestingly... Is it the same ship at the beginning as at the end? Absolutely. But interestingly, even within that, that what seems to be very narrow focus, um, there is a huge amount of range right. where it could go. Yeah. So you've got questions of materialism. You know, the kids can often get wrapped up in whether it's the same thing... Um, whether it's actually the same stuff. Yeah. And then they might end up putting the other parts together, for instance, to make another ship to try and show that yeah. they're not the same. So which of those ships is the exactly. real ship if exactly. you make the... But just yesterday, remake. just yesterday, a, new, a whole new line of inquiry right. came up when one boy said that... Um, uh, he said, well, 
even the tiniest change to the ship, even if you move one pencil a tiny bit, which he did by getting up and, and doing so, he said this would change the whole ship. Right. Because each part is connected to all the other parts. Then he went on to say something really kind of... How old was this guy? This boy was... Um, he would have been ten. Right. No, okay. nine. Right. And he went on to say that every time you step into the school... Every time you tread on something, it changes the school, which in turn, he said, changes the whole world. So this deep thought for a nine-year-old, and it really, really um, had a profound effect on the rest of the class because they really struggled with it. But that was something I hadn't heard before after doing this for how many years. That's brilliant. Okay, so and and then they'd be talking. You'd get them to discuss it, and then you'd bring them back together and give answers to you. Or That's like exactly that. right. So they talk in in pairs or small groups about what they think. Then, well, after a few minutes, they'll come back together to share their ideas together. At that point, the whole class talks. Uh-huh. I will use a ball to manipulate the discussion to sort so of give the ball it. to the person who's talking. Exactly, and all sorts of ways to find out who's got something to say. Yeah. The kids have a hand signals to identify whether they're responding to someone yeah. or whether they're coming up with a new idea. And you get a kind of the idea is to build a kind of dialectic, which means what? Um, dialectic is kind of. Uh, um, what you might a dialogue a dialogue where each idea is building or in some way responding to other ideas in the group so that they start to change each other's minds they start to build perhaps um, uh, if you like a sort of you sometimes hear arguments right. that no single child says but kind of are structured by what a number of children say for mm-hmm. instance so what you might call a ghost argument um, but sometimes the kids will say arguments explicitly themselves as well. Right, okay. So this this process of working together collaboratively, if you like, builds a, a sort of ship of reason, if you oh, will. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> okay. Now, how would that differ from how you would, say, teach uh, uh, what I would call A-level 17, 18-year-olds? Yes. Well, I think that John? you have more um, uh, sort of focus on discussion uh, a, a, a lot of the time. But I mean, so suppose you were just going into a class, how would you start the lesson in the class? Would you get them to read something beforehand or what would you do to start a lesson? Yes, you might do that. Uh, you might start off by asking a question. Uh, Give me an example. Was, so, um, you know, what are your ideas about justice? Right. Or, um, you know, to take something that we, or are, are we free? Uh-huh. Um, so you're talking about freedom and determinism and just getting their ideas uh, out there, really. Right. Just go and you'd the class. write them on the on the board, yes. would you, as they come yes. up? Yes, or on the, on the whiteboard, uh-huh. um, yeah, on the, on the computer um, screen, yeah. Right. So, so uh, the, you know, that's one way. Or you might show a clip from a film. Right. We use a lot of film right. in what we do. I, th- I think uh, one great way of introducing things is actually to get them to feel certain things. So, uh, to give an example, uh, one um, film that I've come across recently, Memento, um, oh, yeah. it is uh, film, about someone who has lost all of their memory, really. Uh, well, yeah. a, a great deal of their memory. All of their long-term memory. All of their, that's right, all of their long-term memory. Uh, and to ruin the film for anyone who's listening... Um, yeah. uh, the Block your ears s- now the, if you want to avoid this. The sequence uh, works so that you go back, uh, you have a, a little clip of this person's life, and then five minutes later in the film you have an earlier clip yeah. uh, of his life, and then five minutes later, after an interlude of something else that's going on, you have another clip. So it's going backwards and, and, in time. And, yeah. and I think the incredibly clever thing about this is that you, as someone who is watching this film, you get to feel something of the confusion uh-huh. 
um, of losing your memory. So what sort um, of question and, would and, you and, ask and, on and, that and film, so, then? So um, we might be looking at the question of what does it mean to be um, rather like the ship, the same person right. from one minute to the next, from one day to the next, from one year to the uh-huh. next, and from birth to death. Uh-huh. Uh, and if we don't have memory, um, or if our memory is corrupted in this kind of a way, um, then what does that do to a sense of our identity? Uh, Are we continuous? But the great thing about a film like this is that it brings their own personal experience, having watched the film, uh, you know, to the table. It means that they're not coming kind of... Uh, just with their ideas, yeah. that they have actually... They've got something uh, to relate and, it and, to. And it's particularly emotional. I think that's very powerful as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they can you know, attach uh, their feelings to th- their thoughts. Yeah. Yes. I mean, so, for example, another question that brings up their feelings would be to uh, um, say I'm teaching sort of slightly younger children, sort of 14, 13-year-olds. Yeah. Um, I might say, uh, write down first question when you go into the class write down an example of something you think is not fair right and then that brings or or, or something that you've seen or observed that you've thought has not been fair right you've got to be slightly tricky they might talk about a colleague or or whatever so uh, but but this brings their experience and their engagement immediately to the surface Right. That's interesting. It's, it's almost like because uh, at the beginning you were saying that the you know the, the philosophy is about logic mm. and argument, mm. um, but interestingly, it's like the hook, the 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 way in which we engage with it is perhaps more to do with the emotional response. Yes. Um, so that's quite interesting that we've got that they've both come up this evening. Okay. Yes. Uh, right, Peter. Um, you say in in your book the If Machine, you say that ifing, what you call ifing, is a particularly good way of developing critical thinking. What's, uh, what is this if-in that you're talking about, and why is it a particularly good way of developing critical thinking? Well, basically, it's hypothetical thinking. Which means what? Um, when one considers a situation which isn't the case, like. but maybe. Um, so whenever you say, um, if, if it were raining, it would be wet, for instance, or yeah. any sentence that begins with an if, you're saying something which um, might not be the case, right. but then we think we're considering what, what would follow from from it being the case. Okay, so to be more speculative, say if uh, if robots had really complicated circuitry, could they would they be humans or would they be people? That might be one, for instance. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I've noticed that when, when when working with children, not just children, anybody for that matter, um, what you want to do is you want to try to if if you want to do philosophy with someone, but you want it to be coming from them. Yeah. One of the problems you're faced with is letting letting it all run freely and then it just not being philosophy. If you let it run freely, it could go any direction. What's the difference between letting them have a free discussion and, and, it, and it being philosophy? Well, that's a big question in yeah, itself. Sure. But um, uh, I suppose if you're wanting them to come... I suppose... Um, let me try and explain th- uh, one of the main problems with philosophical discussions, especially when you're dealing with children... Um, who don't know really what they are. They very often come across things like um, factual or empirical, um, and by empirical I mean factual considerations, things that um, 
it might not be the job of philosophy to 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 answer. Yeah. So, for instance, scientific like questions. what is what is the facts about this, and that's not what you're interested exactly. in so much. Yeah. Exactly. And it often is a stumbling block for discussions. So, a very simple example of ifing is when you you might imagine a discussion where we're talking about people swapping brains. Right. If you swap brains, where would you be? Um, uh, two people swap brains. Where would those two people be? And very often, children might say things like, well, you can't swap brains. Right. It can't be done. Right. Um, now, it's very easy as a teacher uh, to get wrapped up in whether or not you can. Mm-hmm. Or another classic example that I come across a lot is in discussions about colour. Someone will say, black's not a colour. And then someone right. else will say, well, yes, it is. No, right. it's not. Okay. Yes, it yeah. is. And I myself have many times in the past been um, drawn into these, these discussions, trying to answer them, get, you know, and then getting onto the internet and see... And, and it, it really does um, get in the way of a good philosophical discussion. So a very simple way of getting around this is to what I call if the fact, yeah, which, um, which is, as you can imagine, you simply say to the child, well, well if, if... If it was the case that you could, do, you could swap brains, then what would be the outcome? Exactly. Yeah. So that's the most basic sort of, if you like, atomic version of ifing, but it can be used in all sorts of um, uh, more, more sophisticated ways. So, for instance, um, either-oring the if is when you, is when you take... Um, uh, somebody's idea, and you go, you go, you get them to if it one way, and then you get them to if it the other. Yeah. So, for instance, I had a discussion with some children uh, about how many horns a unicorn has. Right. Which, as you can imagine, is very philosophically fertile because of all the stuff about n- non-existent entities. But um, one girl said that, well, unicorns do exist. Yeah. You just have to be lucky to see one. Yeah. Very Suddenly, lucky. all the other children were. Were, were wanting to mock her, to say that they didn't exist and all this, that and the other. But all you need to do, using yeah. the ifing strategy, right. is to say, well, if they did exist, how many horns would they have? Right. And then you go the other way. Yeah. If they didn't exist, how many horns would they have? That's interesting. That question, way you've got them to consider it both ways. The child has now thought about what follows from it being the case that they do or don't exist. Mm-hmm. But nobody's had to be told that... They don't exist. Nobody's been needs to be made fun of. So it has both a philosophical and a pedagogical um, usefulness. Okay. And there are plenty of other examples in the book of that kind of strategy. Okay, John. If if uh, say your discussions was getting off track for older uh, teenagers, I mean, what would be your strategies for getting, you know, getting them to focus on philosophy rather than a discussion of facts? Or is there any particular methods you'd use there? Yes. Uh, I mean, it's it's often possible to uh, you just ask a question often, like you, well, like uh, well, well, what what do you mean uh, when you say that we're free? So mm-hmm. you're discussing freedom and determinism. Uh, you know, someone uh, might have got into you know a, f- a factual discussion about genetics, say, uh-huh. uh, and be relating something that they're doing in science and. Uh, you know that that would be a way of just gently steering things back on track, really. Oh, so you're uh, you, you're still you're sort of always pointing them towards the analysis of the ideas. Is that right? Well, that's that's one thing uh, uh, in terms of you know techniques to steer people back towards philosophy as opposed to something factual. Right. I mean, what what I find is that during the sixth form. Uh, I have to do that less and less, um, if at all, in fact. And uh, I'm working with really pretty bright children, and I think that through practice they actually pick up a sense of what it is they're doing. And while they might not be able to articulate this, they they do have a a picture that they're looking at the meaning of words 
Um, they're looking at how they apply to reality. If they apply to reality, what is reality? They've, they've got sort of some sort of framework of that. Uh, so, in, in, in fact, you do have to... This, I, I mean, it's more, in fact, I would say with sort of 14, 15-year-olds, mm-hmm. uh, if you're talking about philosophy, which, which I do, uh, th- then, you know, you, you, you find yourself do, having to do a bit more steering yeah, I've, um, I've, at that level. I've, I've found that um, working with 14, 15-year-olds actually harder than mm. working with... Um, Eight, nine-year-olds in terms of the focus. Why? So I don't know why. I don't know why this is exactly. But um, but the sort of thing I'm talking about is 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 if you ask focused questions to nine-year-olds, they tend to stay pretty focused, uh-huh. and they, their their ideas seem to connect to the ideas that went before in a reasonably logical mm-hmm. and um, systematic way. But when I've worked with some fourteen-year-olds, suddenly that seems to go, and you get this kind of almost word association kind of thinking whereby one, someone will come up with an idea which will, and one of the words in, the, in that idea will make the other person think of something which has no logical connection but starts them off on a completely different... And, and within three or four contributions, you can be on a completely so different sort of topic. like an fl- uh, intellectual one-upmanship, maybe. Perhaps. I'm not exactly sure yeah. uh, what's going on there, but it seems to be uh, much harder work, I, see, I seem to think, um, working with mm. that age group in terms of... In terms of just keeping it focused. Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I mean, I, th- I think that often an enthusiasm can take over uh, in terms of they want to make their contribution. And it's, uh, I think what can sometimes be tricky is you, you don't want to kind of dampen enthusiasm yeah. at all, but sort of br- bringing people's contributions around and, and affirming the individual and, and, and each person mm. wh- while kind of you know, steering things a bit. That, 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 a bit that's a crowd problem. control, is it, yeah? Is that what it's... Well, well no, I, I mean, because it's, well, it's well-meaning sort of contributions, but, but to, to just gently trying to, you know, uh, steer things uh, uh, while, while also... Uh, because often people, while they're not children, while they're not saying something philosophical, mm-hmm. um, that they, they are making a meaningful and intelligent contribution. Yeah. All right. Okay, we're going to go on to the next track here, which is uh, Sid Barrett, an effervescing elephant, which is a a philosophical lesson in, in animal ethics, let's say. elephant with tiny eyes and great big trunk once whispered to the tiny ear the ear of one inferior that by next june he'd die oh yeah because the tiger would roam the little one said oh my goodness i must stay at home and every time i hear a growl i'll know the tiger's on the prowl and i'll be really safe you know the elephant he told me so everyone was nervy oh yeah and a message was spread to zebra mongoose and the dirty hippopotamus who wallowed in the mud and chewed his spicy hippoplankton food and tended to ignore the word referring to survey a herd of stupid water bison and oh yeah and all the jungle took fright and ran around for all the day and the night but all in vain because you see the tiger came and said who me you know i wouldn't have 
hurt not one of you. I much prefer something to chew, and you're all too scant. Oh, yeah, he ain't the elephant. This is Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine on, and on the Philosophy Now radio show on Resonance FM. And we're talking about teaching philosophy to children and to teenagers. Um, so I've just got, we've talked a bit about different techniques for teaching these young people. Um, I've just got some various questions here. Uh, Peter, you teach philosophical criti- or critical thinking to children as young as four. What, so, what sort of philosophy can you possibly teach to children of that age and how do you do it? Well, it's, it's less a case of teaching them the philosophy right. and allowing them to kind of discover it. So, what? yeah, but what are you getting... What could a four-year-old discover about philosophy, then, if I put it that way? Um, what do you mean? What sort of philosophical ideas can they yeah, discover? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I already talked earlier about the, um, the question of identity, and right. that's something that can be done with many age groups. Um, I've also done sessions with, uh, say... Uh, six-year-olds on part-whole relationships. Um, so if you, if you were to just make a, again, out of pencils, make a little man on the ground right. um, and ask the children how many, how many things are there here, yeah. you might get a variety of different answers right. from one, yeah. because there's a man, uh-huh. to seven, because there's seven pencils that make the man. To eight because you've got the seven pencils plus the man. Okay, you know, and all this sort of stuff, and and you might have no. There's only three things there because they're um, uh, because there there might be pencils, three, four pencils, and a, a a ball and a box. So they'll say there's three. There's a there's pencils, ball, and a box. I'm getting the idea that there's no particularly correct answer to any of these well, questions that you ask people. I suppose what I'm interested in them identifying is when is identifying tensions, controversies, and problems. Right. Because it seems... Going back to the teaching argument skills and critical thinking skills. That's right. So what I'm keen to do is I don't simply put that pencil man there and ask them that question, because if I do, I'm likely to just get the same answer, which is however many pencils there are. Yeah. So what you need to do is to try and give them a context in which that tension comes out to them... So what would you do? ...without saying it to them yourself. So... I use stories a Uh lot. These are a lot of stories. So, for instance, uh, with that particular example, I would begin by telling the story of the elephant and the six blind men, which you may well know. Yeah. Um, this is the famous story in which there's an elephant in a tent or something, and there's some blind men in my story, blindfolded, um, and they each go in to find out what's in the tent. And because they're all feeling a different part of the elephant, they describe what's in there as something very different from each other. So yeah. one holds the tail, one holds the legs, one holds the trunk. Um, etc. So, uh, in my version, the children don't know it's an elephant that's in there. Right. So they will, they just hear the descriptions from the the, the wise men. So it's a rope, or it's a tree trunk, or exactly. it's a hose. Or, You've got it. You know. At the end, there's a list of six different things, and the discussion is, what? Uh, how many things do you think are in there? Is what I first asked them. Yeah. So. Some of them will say, well, it has to be six because they're all so different. Mm-hmm. Some will say it might be a, a, something that's changing. There might be different rooms with different things in there. Um, it might be a castle in which you've got a spear and all this, that and the other attached to it. Now, as a result of coming up with all these ideas, they start to explore for themselves the concepts of part-whole relationships. 
Mm-hmm. So they're starting to already consider. One of the kids might say, for instance, well, it could be a castle because that would have the spear and that would have the, the, the door the, the, the door, and that, that would have the tree. And then you might say, well, if it were a castle, ifing, okay, mm-hmm. if it were a castle, then would that be one thing or would that be many things? And they might say, well, that would be one thing because they're all attached. Yeah. So they've already started to get into Analyze this. Analyse their concepts. Exactly. Yeah, right. So I call this a primer discussion because the kids are having the primer discussion. They're having this discussion where they're exploring the concepts for themselves. And then when I put the pencil man on the ground and say how many things are here, that's when you're guaranteed to get lots of different answers and for those children to disagree with each other. And when that happens, you know that you've, they've identified a tension, a controversy here, right. rather than a straightforward, well, there's eight, isn't there? Okay. Um, and that's what I'm looking for, is to find a way to draw for the children to identify the, con- the tensions and the controversies and for those controversies to then fuel the uh, conceptual analysis, if you like, or okay. whatever it is that they go on to do. All right, John, what differences are there in teaching different ages and what are the differences in responses and what are sort of different problems associated with different ages? Yes, uh, well, I, th- I think that in terms of problems associated with different ages, that um, w- with, with sixth form... Um, mm. 17-year-olds, 18 Yeah, 17, 18-year-olds... Uh, and I think this this comes to um, uh, something that Pete, Pete was saying a minute ago. Uh, it, it takes some 17, 18 year olds um, some time to actually get into this process, having had no introduction to philosophy in their earlier years, uh, to actually kind of really start to manage to take apart concepts and arguments at quite an advanced level. Um, <coughs> And, and isn't that the same, Isn't that true of anybody who's just been introduced to philosophy, though? Do you think? Th- yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it is. I, th- I think that it, it is. It is conceptually difficult, and and you, you use a wide variety of techniques. I mean, w- things that I do, for example, is you take an argument, um, you simplify it, you cut it up, um, and you get. You know, a group of pupils to you know, uh, arrange things in, um, in 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 a logical order. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you um, kind of talk about an issue, um, as I say, steer the discussion, get pupils to sort of stand in a line, kind of in terms of where they agree and disagree with a particular concept. You know, and then they've got to justify their place. Uh, on a spectrum in terms of uh, agreement and disagreement. But I think that, um, you know, it's important that pupils feel that they are in a safe environment, they feel confident, Mm -hmm. uh, that they're not going to be shot down. So they Um, want to be able to express their views and not be ridiculed, basically. uh, Absolutely. Um, But but also, because I, I think what's very important is that they can get things wrong um, that they can, you know, leave a sentence half finished. That they can sort of, oh no, I've not got this right, and and that's just fine. That it's all the time just trying and trying. You want to encourage them to develop their ideas. A concern I have, um, uh, in general, with with teaching, particularly the teaching of philosophy, and particularly with the teaching of philosophy with young children, is that very often the the um, the expression "there are no right and wrong answers" is, is used, yeah. and I and I, mm. I find this concerning mm. because um, it seems to be the case that people have this view of philosophy that when you're doing philosophy, it that, that there's no way in which it can be wrong or right. Yes, um, and this doesn't seem to be right 
either. <laughs> um, However, th then the problem I've been left with for many years is how do you get this, strike this balance between having a safe environment, as you say, for the kids to be able to explore their ideas and uh, without being condemned or shot down, um, but at the same time not telling them the, what I think is the, the false, but giving them the false belief that there are no right and wrong answers. Yeah. So for this reason, one of the things which I'm very keen to do is for the children to learn how to... Um, to analyse each other's arguments, how to criticise each other's arguments respectfully mm -hmm. so that people understand, as long as it's done in the right kind of way, yes. It's, yes. it's appropriate. Mm. And then what they do is that without me having to tell anyone who's right and wrong, mm -hmm. plus, the fact that, plus the fact I don't necessarily know who's right and wrong, yeah. um, they will themselves start to identify what are the good answers and what are the not-so-good answers. And interestingly, they will identify even in themselves what's a good answer and what's not a good answer. And I think that the, the interesting thing is, is the dialectic process. This, I spoke earlier about the process of, of building on each other, listening to each other and reasoning with each other and cr criticising each other. Um, that process has a kind of self-regulatory um, uh, uh, function. Yes, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with that. And that's the ideal where, in fact, you're intervening not too much and they are sort of managing to manage a philosophical discussion for themselves. And when you've got to that point, then I think that you've got a, a very long, long way. Um, because, but without because, necessarily everyone thinking that everyone's right. That's the yes, that's right. I, I mean, it, it is this, this sort of dialogue between the psychological that mm. uh, people need to feel able to speak, mm. not threatened by the situation. And at the same time, the philosophical sort of agenda, which is that, you know, a relativism where we say, well, um, you know, this idea is, is right in this culture and That's this right. idea is right in that other culture. And we can't, you know, kind of therefore have any sort of dialogue. Uh, and and that's that's something that that you know in I often people, get nature's cultures. Uh, so um, correct me if I'm wrong, we, but you're aiming that. you're aiming to foster what might be called correct ways of arguing rather than saying this is a correct answer. You can say this mm, is a wrong. I think way that might be right. Yeah, wrong way of arguing or something. Yes, yes, I think that's right. And also and also the crucial element of self um, uh, uh, assessment. So for instance, you know, I often get asked especially by the young children who are used to a culture of finding out what the answer is at the end of a session. Uh -huh. So I often get asked at the end of, say, doing the ship of thesis or the, the pencil man stuff, um, what's the answer? Right. <laughs> so, well, can, so can you tell me the answer now? Yeah, I'd ask you that. Um, yeah, and it's an interesting one. I've had to think very long and hard about how I respond to that, but I've, I've eventually discovered to uh, take in the line that it's better to engage them in that very question itself. This now brings us back to the meta-level stuff I spoke about right at the beginning. Um, so rather than giving them some sort of answer or, or, or not answering them at all, I now say to them, well, um, if I told you this would that be the right answer? Or would you agree with me? Yeah. Or if I told you... The, and then I might either yeah. all the so if and go both they're ways. They're still evolved in the process of doing philosophy. Exactly, yeah. OK, brilliant. Now we're going to pretend to be maroon pirates, courtesy of the coral. This is Skeleton Key. Like the lead, our pills roll them out with ease. Solid bones. 
from Philosophy Now magazine on the Philosophy Now radio show on Resonance FM and we're talking about teaching philosophy to young people um, so I want to put this open to both of you, uh, can you think of any particularly memorable or surprising insults insights, sorry, <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of a Freudian thing isn't it, uh, insights your students have come up with or insults maybe even Yes, I, I, I mean I, I think that what has sort of surprised me uh, is when I ask pupils, OK, you've got to do this 5,000-word extended essay as part of the International Baccalaureate, right. uh, and the topics that they come out with, and the, 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 off, the, uh, off their own bat, you know, w- the things that they investigate that are often off the syllabus, they've gone off. Give me an example. Well, um, I, I had um, uh, one student who read um, uh, a book that is absolutely undergraduate level, by a, a Danish philosopher called Soren Kierkegaard, uh-huh. uh, read uh, Kierkegaard's book *Fear and Trembling*, which is really um, uh, a, a, an analysis of the Abraham Isaac story right. uh, uh, and um, the issue of faith. Uh-huh. You know, if, if Abraham lived today, uh, he'd be locked up for taking his son and being prepared to kill him. Right. Yeah, but what true. makes Abraham um, a, a hero of faith uh, uh, then uh, and and now? Um, for for many religious believers, uh, but if someone actually did that now, um, 
they generally so speaking would 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 not be. It surprised um, you that they come up with this topic to, to uh, start well, with. Well, I, I, th- this was not something that we'd studied. Th- this um, young man decided to uh, analyse the concept, give a philosophical analysis of the concept of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and and every year, you know, I get I get students who. Uh, go completely uh, away from what we've done and from their own uh, interest um, focus on something that inspires them. And I, and I think it's that independence, you know, that, that I, I find inspiring all the time. And okay. just, uh, I mean, another thing, uh, the wonderful thing about teaching philosophy, um, uh, uh, among many others, is that you walk into a class and their insights, their questions, I mean, they've got one class at the moment, and, uh, you know, they ask so many questions. Mm. And, and that is just wonderful. Okay, brilliant. What about um, you, Pete? Well, uh, there was one, Briefly, well, yeah. one, one thing I do remember is a girl called Eve yeah. who said, um, why? She said, if we can't see atoms, right. then when I look at my hand, I shouldn't be able to see anything. That's clever, isn't it? Well, how old was she? <laughs> she was, at the time, 10. Right. And, um, I mean, I wonder if... So if, what's the answer to that, Pete? Well, the interesting thing is, is, that, is that we were... There was a group of, a, a group of philosophers in the room at the time. And That's we a all, good collective now, a group of philosophers. We all looked puzzled. Right. <laughs> we all looked <laughs> grumpy. Yeah. Um, because we couldn't work out how to do this. Then there was an, a 10-year-old boy who said, well, that's easy. Yeah? He said, the reason is because you, can, you can't see an atom, but you can see atoms. Right. Collection, like, <laughs> yeah, these clever people that you're you're dealing with, right? Okay, we'll just want to round up, round up with some um, plugging now. So, Pete's book is the If Machine, and as I say, this is a, uh, a handbook for teaching philosophy to um, primary school children. Would you say? I'd say, I'd say primary up to early secondary. Yeah. Okay, and you can get that from Pete's website. Which any is, age, really, any age. Which is your website? Is um, thephilosophyshop.co.uk Right, and suppose that somebody wants some more in-depth uh, teaching, are there courses or anything that you're Yeah, we run courses for particularly aimed at philosophy graduates um, who want to work in primary schools or secondary right. schools doing philosophy um, and we run courses, our stage one course our next one I think is the weekend of the 2nd and 3rd of July And then anybody interested just go to the, the website, which is there. again uh, thephilosophyshop.co.uk Right, okay. And uh, you've got a roundtable coming up? Got a roundtable event at um, the uh, the LSE, uh-huh. um, which is on the, the 23rd of June. Uh-huh. It's from 5 till 7.50pm. And what PM. does that mean? Anybody can turn up? Yes, it's anyone can turn up and it's also free. So that's right. worth so, And you'll to. be talking about philosophy for children. That's right, yeah, from the point of view of practitioners, also um, academics and policymakers, um, to talk about the implications of philosophy in the curriculum. Okay, uh, and John, uh, have you got anything you want to plug? Well, uh, yes, uh, I would say uh, for anyone listening who is interested in finding out more about philosophy, uh, there's um, uh, an organisation called Philosophy for All. Uh, mm-hmm. It meets the first Wednesday of every month in a pub called the Exmouth Arms uh, uh, near Euston. Uh, you're welcome to go on the uh, PFA website uh, and find out more. It's The whole idea is that it's designed for people who don't know anything about philosophy mm-hmm. at all uh, uh, as, as an introduction. And uh, if uh, 
you have children uh, who would like to find out more about philosophy um, uh, and you live in South East London, uh, St Dunstan's is a great place to study um, philosophy and religious studies along with many other subjects too. Okay, that's brilliant. Well, I'm, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy uh, Now magazine and we've been presenting this programme in conjunction with our special themed Philosophy for Children issue which is out now and I should say that my book is called The Meta Revolution, M-E-T-A and is available as a hard copy from Amazon or as an electronic copy from Smashwords. Uh, the next edition of the Philosophy Now radio show is on the 15th of June and I'll be discussing the mysteries of the quantum universe with Manjit Kumar. Thank you for listening and goodbye.